Forty years ago, February, Iran was convulsed by one of the great revolutions of the 20th century. From that moment until now, Iran would be ruled by an ayatollah, a man with deep knowledge of Sharia, Islamic law, and strong convictions about Islamic governance. That ayatollah was Ruhollah Khomeini. He would take the title supreme leader, a synonym for dictator. He would merit that authority because he was to be regarded literally as God's representative on earth. Ayatollah Khomeini was a charismatic fire and brimstone cleric, an unwavering proponent of jihad against America and the West. When he died in 1989, the title went to Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who in no way moderated the regime's ideology. He has called the Islamic Revolution the turning point in modern world history. Today, the regime in Tehran influences Iraq, props up the Assad dictatorship in Syria, where there's more than a half million people killed and millions made homeless, controls Lebanon through Hezbollah, and backs the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Thinking longer term, Supreme Leader Khamenei has a nuclear weapons program, perhaps delayed but certainly not ended, but the deal President Obama concluded, as well as a program to develop missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons to targets anywhere in the world. I'm joined by FDD Research Fellow Benham Ben Talablu and FDD Freedom Scholar Michael Ledeen has been studying the Islamic Republic over all these decades. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Michael, let me start with you, and let's start prior to the revolution. How, how would you appraise the, the rule of the Shah of Iran? Um, it, it was oppressive. Was it anything near as oppressive as the regime that rules Iran today? Uh, even though he was, uh, he was cruel, he had a nasty secret police, Savak. Uh, you wouldn't call it law and order. You would call it dictatorship. Uh, but as dictators go, he was a pretty mild one. And he was a pretty indecisive one, too, as events would prove. He was not a real tough guy. Before you were born, before you, your family left in what year, and, and how did they and how did they find it? So my family's from two different areas of Iran. My father's from a small village in the northwest that benefited greatly from the Shah's urbanization and development and public health programs. But my mother's family lived in Tehran, and my grandfather on her side uh, was a reporter for Etalat newspaper, the second big state paper. And they fled after he was taken to Evin prison after the revolution. Well, they stayed after they, they were there under the Shah. They did fairly well. They were doing well under the Shah. Yeah. The revolution took place and they were looked upon, your family would say, with some suspicion by the ruling author authorities now. And, and you say your, your grandfather was actually arrested. Exactly. And for what? Uh, he actually started working for a paper uh, that was started in Washington, D.C., uh, dealing with the Iranian diaspora then. Mm -hmm. And he would be telexing stories into Washington. And the revolutionaries would ask, who is this guy telexing Washington, D.C.? And then he was taken to Evin prison, charged with some kind of slander, released on temporary probation, and that's when they knew they had to leave. 
And it was was it difficult for them to get out of that? Yeah, they they all fled. My mother's family fled in different different times, different different places, different locales. Uh, but she actually met my father in Italy, who was working in a carpet shop. Uh, in a small world, by uh, by happenstance, he was working for this uh, Iranian Jewish carpet merchant who was friends with my grandmother on my mm-hmm. mom's side. They met there, and they came to the States in 83. 1979, about this time, I was a reasonably young foreign correspondent, and I was sent to Iran just about the time that Ayatollah Khomeini was coming back from exile in Paris on a private uh, charter jet. And my assignment for Bill Moyer's Journal, which was a TV program on, on uh, PBS, public broadcasting, uh, and for Hearst newspapers, there were quite a few of them those days, and for CBS radio, um, was to cover what was about to happen, which was very quickly this revolution that was going to, that was beginning to take place. The Shah was already gone. The Ayatollah came back. Um, most interesting to me, You'll start to comment on this, Michael, was the extent to which the my fellow journalists there, the diplomats, and many of the Iranians I met, really had no idea what theology, ideology, governing system Ayatollah Khomeini represented and had been writing about and intended to impose upon the country. Well, as a government, we didn't know anything about anything. Uh, uh, after after the revolution, uh, CIA was called into close session by Senator Scoop Jackson, and uh, they were asked, "Well, d- didn't you read Khomeini's books? Because all of all of what Khomeini stood for was in his lectures, which were then published, and there were two volumes. Some of us got." Uh, English translations of some of them. And the CIA, the CIA said they thought they were probably Israeli forgeries. And they were unaware of any actual writings. The CIA thought that these writings, that he and he had been writing and lecturing since like 1945, that they were Israeli forgeries. They didn't believe them because they were too radical. They thought this is what the Israelis are going to try. They they just didn't have any information. They didn't know anything. They knew they didn't like Israel. Still today, they don't much like Israel, and uh, and that was their testimony to uh, to scoop. Anybody was anybody getting it right at that point? Any scholars? Bernard Lewis, for example. Bernard Lewis had it right and helped uh, three. There were three journalists, three of us, who published op-eds on the subject of what did Khomeini stand for? If you don't like the Shah, you're really going to hate Khomeini and so forth. Uh, And they were. uh, I wrote it in the Wall Street Journal. Judy Miller wrote it in the New York Times. And uh, at the Washington Post, one of the editors on the editorial page, he was the he was the assistant to Meg Greenfield, and uh, yeah, so we wrote it up and were promptly accused of being guess what, uh, Israeli agents. So so here's what the New York New York Times editorial told its readers about that time. Readers were reassured that quote moderate progressive individuals. We're advising Khomeini. The, the New York Times predicted Ayatollah would provide, quote, a desperately needed model of humane governance for a third world country. 
When did you start to uh, study what had happened? When did you, I mean, this was at a certain point you decided I'm going to I'm going to learn a lot more. Well, in some ways, it's kind of been a, a life's quest. Uh, I wanted to know why there was a kid named Benham growing up in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> so, in in some ways, whether it was the politics, the history, the culture, the food, the language, I felt like it was an obligation. And particularly after nine eleven in in New York City. Um, there were people of Muslim ancestry, Middle Eastern ancestry who wanted to flee from these questions. And I thought it was our responsibility to embrace these questions. Who are we? How did we get here? Why are we here? What are the mistakes? And, uh, you know, I'm an only child, a little bit of a stubborn guy. And I've, I've been known to chastise my family for saying, you know, the CIA missed it, but you also missed it. You guys lived there and you missed it. And you guys weren't reading the Khomeini books either. No one was really engaging in the stuff. Yeah. They benefited from the big economic boom in the 60s and 70s. And people were having a great time. You just looked at the photos of Iran then, yeah. the fundamental transformation of society. Um, so because we've missed it, everyone missed it, we all need to study it. And we all need to make sure we can't miss it again. So we had a pretty rough 40 years. Mm. Let's make sure we don't lose the next 40 years. My producer, because um, I was working on a documentary, who was Iranian, they all were very pro Khomeini and not and I'll, t I'll tell more about this in a minute but some of them were not particularly I would not say they were particularly religious or Islamist but I remember young people saying yes but Khomeini values us we all contributed to the revolution so he he's not just toleration I think it's I, I think he understands and he'll be he'll, he'll allow us that happened until their newspapers closed down until they some of them got arrested some of them ended up getting executed and others, you know, fled back to the University of Texas at Austin where they had studied. They spoke English. So that's why I knew them. Here's on February 12th, 1979, what Time Magazine reported. Iranians will surely insist that the revolution live up to its democratic aims. Those who know Khomeini expect that eventually he will settle in the Shiite holy city of Khom and resume a life of teaching and prayer. Khomeini believes that Iran should become a parliamentary democracy with several political parties. That's pretty bad for Time magazine to, to have that reading of what was going on. That's missing the mark by a lot. By, by quite a bit, yeah. It was a, and also Khomeini and, and some of the people around him, there were actually progressives around him, some leftists around him, nationalists around him, even a couple of guys who you could define as playboy types around, uh, around Khomeini, asking out journalists every time they weren't taping the Ayatollah. Very interesting cadre of people. And in some ways, they were all instrumental in, in Khomeini's vision because he did value them. He used them and then he burned them. And the decade of the 1980s is the decade where this broad coalition brings in an Islamic Republic, but then there's a fundamental contraction of the Iranian political space. And the Iranian political domestic spectrum has been contracting, contracting, and contracting, and hardening and coarsening ever since. President Carter's UN ambassador at that time was Andrew Young. He called Khomeini, I'm quoting, some kind of saint. And William Sullivan, who was the U.S. ambassador in Tehran, and I met him, he compared Khomeini to Gandhi, to Gandhi. And there was a State Department spokesman who worried about the possibility of a military coup, saying that would be, quote, most dangerous for U.S. interests. It would blow away the moderates and invite the majority to unite behind a radical faction. This was this was this was really far 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 afield, and it's and that the the State Department, not just the CIA, could be that living there could be that wrong about that. Really does strike me as a little distressing. Well, well most of the time we're wrong, so it's normal to be wrong, and uh, I'm never surprised when when we get it wrong. I'm surprised 
when we get it right sometimes. CIA on Iran has, so far as I can tell, an unbroken and unblemished record of always being wrong. They didn't see the revolution coming. They didn't, they weren't up to speed on the nuclear stuff as we've been publishing over and over again. Um, uh, they just never get it right. They don't ever expect uh, an, a revolution of any sort to break out in Iran, even though a basic historian knows that Iran had three revolutions in the 20th century. It's a revolutionary society. It's always been that way. And so they do this over and over again, and yet we are reluctant to believe that it was going to happen in 79 or that it could happen again today. You know, I I mentioned the city of Khum, which is the holiest city in Iran, and, uh, and the, the Ayatollah Khomeini did go there, and uh, my producer and I and a cameraman and a sound man. The producer, I say, was an, was an Iranian who had been picked by PBS, by Bill Moyer's journal. I met him there. I, I had nothing to do with it. And we went, and we were not able to interview Khomeini, but we were able to film him in the city. We were with a huge crowd um, in front of his house waiting to see him, waiting a very long time, very dusty, as I remember. And eventually, he came out on the roof of this small bungalow where he was, where he was living, very modest bungalow, and he did look like a figure out of the Bible. He was charismatic. He was kind of big, and he had the um, the, the, the large beard and the black robes, um, and he didn't smile at all. Um, he was very stern, and at one point, he just kind of waved his arm across the crowd and kind of blessing, and people cheered, and the women ululated. For those who don't know what ululation is, is and at that point, my producer, Bijan, I forget his last name, Bijan turned to me and said, Cliff, you sure are lucky, aren't you? And I didn't know quite what he meant. And I said, yeah, I, I guess I, I am, you know, because uh, get out of school, a lot of terrible jobs you could do where you're kind of sitting in offices all day pushing papers around. And uh, here I am. I got a front row seat on history and getting paid for it. Yeah, I'm pretty lucky. And he kind of scoffed and laughed at me. He said, no, you, you really don't understand, do you? He said, let me explain. In all of history, there have been only a few truly great men. There was Mohammed. Uh, there was Jesus. There was Moses. And now there is Khomeini. And you are in his glorious presence. And I, and I do remember thinking, wow, I really don't understand what's going on here. I mean, later I learned that there were many, and maybe Bijan was one of them, who quite literally believed that Khomeini was essentially the Messiah, the hidden imam awaited by the Shia faithful for centuries. That, 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 that was the belief among some. Maybe it still is to this day. And, and it's something Khomeini himself played up. And just as a small aside for the listeners, uh, in Sunni Islam, an imam is literally the Arabic word imam, which is someone who stands before you, leads you in prayer, and, and that's it. Your obligations are discharged after you're done praying. But in Shiite Islam, which has this charismatic authority and it's through this blood lineage, um, there are only as at max 12 for the biggest school of Shia Islam. The 12 school, there are 12 imams. The 12th imam is in occultation or he's basically hidden. And in his absence, it's these kind of ayatollahs like Khomeini that can arbitrate and decide for you between God and heaven and earth. And uh, the title imam was given to Khomeini even though Shia leaders are 
they disavow such a title. In fact, titles are invented in Shi'ism. Ayatollah is only a 200-year-old title. Mm-hmm. It's not as old as Islam itself, which is 1,400 years old. And Khomeini never shunned the term imam because he liked to cultivate the persona that he may be the hidden imam. And of course, you mentioned his image. Uh, he wore the black turban. He's a descendant of the mm-hmm. Prophet Muhammad. And that's uh, an important distinction among Iran's clergy, the black and the white turbans. Uh, and a white turban means what? That you He's are just a, a lay, holy man, but, uh, not, exactly. but not a descendant. And the necessity of being actually descended from the prophet, that's very important in terms of giving you authority. And that kind of charismatic legitimacy, which Shiism believes all those 12 imams had. Michael, you'll often hear um, people talk about this revolution, the 40th anniversary now, two generations, uh, as an Iranian revolution. But isn't that really a misnomer? Because it was never meant to be an Iranian revolution. It was meant to be an Islamic revolution and a global revolution that would begin in Iran. I mean, go ahead. I'll let you go. Uh, no, Khome- Khomeini himself rejected uh, the very idea of an Iranian revolution. And he said, there is no Iran. There's only Islam. And what's going on now has to do with Islam, not with Iran. And only pagans believe that Iran is important in this story. Right. He said that patriotism is paganism. In other words, it right. repeats, if you love your country, well, that's you're, you're worshiping an idol. You're right. worshiping a fiction. You're not supposed to love your country. You're supposed to love and worship Allah. That's all, right. That, and nothing else. Anything else is, I guess, idolatry. For that would be, you know, abdication of the faith. Abdication of the faith. I would also argue, and others have, I think Bernard Lewis has, I think Steve Call has in Ghost Wars, that while this wasn't a revolution that took place in Iran, and while it was a revolution that took place among Shias, it also had enormous impact on the Sunni and Arab world. Uh, Steve Call puts it this way, um, that Khomeini, while anathema to many conservative Sunni Islamists, nonetheless his audacious achievements inspired Muslims everywhere. The way I might put it is that uh, Sunnis and Arabs said, look at this, in the modern world, here's the first nation state devoted, committed to jihad. Where in the Sunni and Arab world is our commitment to jihad? Where is the state committed to? It's supposed to be Saudi Arabia, perhaps, since they control the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. They're the custodians. But the Saudi princes are having too good a time skiing in the Alps, shopping in Paris, maybe drinking whiskey with their infidel friends in Washington. And from that sentiment, what comes? Well, al-Qaeda, essentially. Am I right? Uh, Khomeini and after him Khamenei. If you read Khamenei's, if you go to his web page or you go to his Facebook page and so on, you will see that he claims to be the leader of all Muslims, not just Shia. So he doesn't, he doesn't restrict his own belief in his own divinity, authority, and all like charisma and so forth over Shia. He, he thinks all Muslims owe it to him to do what he says and follow his line. And that's uh, that's very important. People miss that a lot. There's so much talk about Sunni and Shia, which is a relatively trivial distinction, actually, if you go into it. It has to do with the succession 
to the Prophet Muhammad and who is legitimate and who isn't and so on. It's not a profound theological uh, difference. In terms of the ambitions of the Islamic Republic today, uh, imminently it's for hegemony in the Middle East, and that's hegemony over countries, lands that are Sunni as, as well as Shia. So you have, for example, you have a, a, a real serious attempt, possibly successful, particularly following the withdrawal from Iraq of U.S. forces in 2011 by President Obama, to essentially take control of Iraq. Now, Iraq is more Shia than anything else, but it's also it's also Sunni and it's also Kurdish. Most of the Kurds are also Sunni. Um, Syria um, has Shia, but mostly it's, it's Sunni. With uh, Assad being an Alawite, one can one you'll see in the press that he, that means he's a sort of Shia. I doubt whether Alawites in Iran would be considered sort of Shia. I think they'd be considered heretics because their practices are very different from most Shia. But it's good enough over there in Syria. And then you've got Hezbollah, which is very much the foreign legion and the proxy of uh, of Iran. I think for all intents and purposes, really has taken over Lebanon. A lot of people don't want, including the U.S. government, don't want to admit that. Uh, FDD's Tony Bedron has written a lot about this, but it's probably the case. And of course, supporting Hamas, uh, which is Sunni, but their opposition they, to Israel is something they have in common. Let me let you t- take off from there. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned all those theaters, Cliff, because when you talk about Iranian power today, and, and more importantly, the power of the Islamic Revolution, there is a geography to the power of the Islamic Revolution that exists today in its 40th anniversary abroad that did not necessarily exist uh, in the first few days after the revolution. Yes, Iran, Khomeini, the revolutionaries, the what became the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps were busy trying to spread the message. Yes, there were lots of adherents, people in the Sunni world, people in other third world countries where this message was receptive. But now there's a hard power component to that. And the hard power component of that is best summed up by this quote uh, from Soleimani, commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force. And it's literally designed to spread the Islamic Revolution, to safeguard the interests of the Islamic Revolution. Again, not necessarily the state, but the, the tone and tenor of the revolution, what the values and interests of that revolution are abroad in places like Syria are quite different from what the values and interests of the nation state, Iran, are in Syria. That's an important distinction. But there is this geography to Iranian power today, to the Islamic revolution today, that makes it even more lethal, even though at home it's under immense strain. Ahmadinejad, president uh, of Iran before Rouhani, uh, gave a public speech in which he said to his listeners, you must prepare yourselves to rule the world. Not the Middle East, not the Muslim communities, but the world. And Michael, that's not entirely aspirational because Hezbollah and and the Islamic Republic do operate beyond the Middle East. For example, let's start with this, Michael. I'll talk a little bit about, of all places, South America. Well, yes, look at uh, Venezuela, the... Uh the uh, Quds Force and Hezbollah are all over Venezuela. First okay. Chavez, yeah. now Maduro. First Chavez, now Maduro. And the whole relationship between Iran and Venezuela has long been very close. Uh, Iran and Hezbollah were involved in the worst acts of terrorism in Argentina's history and got away with it. And uh, then the intrepid uh, uh, prosecutor, investigator, um, was murdered, and we still don't know by exactly by whom or under who, who's, whose orders. Uh, but it makes it very hard to hold anybody responsible ever 
for the uh, for the bombings of the 19, uh, 1990s. So we, we know we have quite a bit of intent to penetrate Latin America uh, right now going on. Why why Latin America as well as Africa? You as well say? as Africa, yeah. We're in Africa, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the university that Iran is creating there and has created there, which complements its cultural centers, its Shiite outreach, is uh, a variant of the Al Mustafa University or a different branch of the Al Mustafa University, which, uh, as you know, is active. I think I don't know in which country in the tri-border area in mm-hmm. South America there is mm-hmm. an Al Mustafa branch, but it's a it's a prime location for recruitment, for radicalization, and also to make sure that Iran's political message about revolutionary Islam complements the theological message that they have there. And in some ways, Iran, I'm sorry, the Islamic Republic of Iran, I should say, is in many ways like the Soviet Union, seeking to capture first the hearts and minds of men and then empower them, equip them with with money, with munitions. First, they want to go for the educational, get the next generation. Because what they did in Iran is they, they established the government of God. But what they realized they never did is they never established the society of God. The government of God has to be sustained by the society of God. That's why Turkey is such a threat today, because half the country is cleft apart from the other half, wants a radically different kind of state, a more religious state. In Iran, you don't have necessarily the population supporting the religious aspirations. So they're looking elsewhere. They're looking to get new recruits in Africa and Latin America, places where the the message of supporting the downtrodden and dispossessed against American imperialism is concurrent with leftism and, and this kind of revolutionary liberation theology. That's an important point that I missed, and I want to come back to you for one second. A lot of people on the, on the left and a lot of people in Europe um, have been sympathetic towards the Islamic Republic, certainly not hostile towards it, in some cases apologists for it. Right now you have the Europeans. I understand they were part of the JCPOA and think it was a positive development, but they're trying to trade with Iran. Is, is part of the reason because Khomeini did mix in a certain amount of Marxism and anti, uh, anti-American imperialism with his Shia theology? Was that what has been so appealing? He worked with the Iranian left, real left, communist left, two-dip party. He worked with them. And, them and imprisoned them once he came to power, did not? Yeah. yeah. But that, that should have been a warning to some people on the left that maybe this is not so sympathetic to our to our goals when you're putting communists and socialists. They're in very prison. slow learners. <laughs> the uh, uh, and don't forget the uh, the surprisingly close ties between the Islamic Republic of Iran and South Africa. Uh, the the biggest cell phone network in Iran is South Africa. Uh, a huge volume of business goes on between South Africa and Iran. And uh, the South Africans have long been in bed with uh, the Islamic Republic. Even Mandela goes back to Mandela. He had no suspicions about it. He was friendly. He thought this was a progress. He liked them. He liked them. We should also mention in South America, and our colleague Emanuele Atalenge here at FDD has been researching this more than anybody, uh, that Hezbollah, again, Iran's proxy, has been making common cause with uh, narcotraficantes, with drug cartels, because they have complementary skills. I'll get you guns, you can launder my money, we'll help you with the smuggling. And this has been going on for a very long time. Um, there was, for a while, a, a significant operation against it called Operation Cassandra. Actually, President Obama essentially shut it down because he thought it might interfere with his uh, his his negotiations uh, with the regime that produced the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal. 
Yeah, the, the JCPOA just seems to be the gift that keeps on giving, even though it's dead, <laughs> or at least right, on our yeah, side. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on inside Iran right now. We've been seeing protests for some time. What more do we know? So the kind of protest that we're seeing now in Iran is, is really the continuation of, of a couple of trends that you're seeing in the country for over a decade. One is the, the cleavage between state and society. And then the other is the cleavage between the center and the periphery. So there's the, the Persian core and then the ethnic minorities and, of course, the, the more impoverished regions when you get closer to Iran's borders with its neighbors. And it's telling that the December 2017 protests, the ones that really kick-started this wave, didn't come from people with genes cooler than you and I. They came from the urban and rural poor, the actual religious people, the downtrodden and dispossessed of Iran, the people that Khomeini really created the revolution for, uh, the blue-collar revolution, if you will. And they're the ones seeing the Islamic Republic, as the late Ayatollah Montezeri said, uh, who was supposed to be Khomeini's successor, but then was imprisoned and then died under house arrest, uh, as neither Islamic nor Republic. They see the vision that they fought for quite zealously under the revolution uh, as slipping away and slipping away because the veneer of tyranny is exposing itself in Iran. And even those who fought for a more Islamic society are not seeing those dividends today. And they're making common cause with other protesters in Iran, labor union, truck drivers, professors, teachers, women activists. And they are actually seem to be this, this mass of different people seem to be the saving grace for, I would say, the forces of nationalism across the world. In many places, when you talk about rising forces of nationalism, we speak about it in a somewhat pejorative way because of the other ideologies that they may embody, anti-Semitism, this kind of radical populism. In Iran, people who want Iran to be put first really just generally want a better life. And, and they're not interested in the Palestinian dispute. They're not interested in, you know, trafficking and, and drug trafficking or uh, immigrants in Europe. They're interested in having Iran be good for Iranians. And I think under 40 years, under the Islamic Republic, the number one loser uh, uh, has been Iranians. You know, Iranians are looked down upon today. You know, my father always tells me this story. When he was in Italy, crossing between Switzerland and Italy in the back of a car, he didn't have to really get out of the car. He would just wave the old Iranian passport. You know, today, you know, any Iranian will tell you how hard it is to travel abroad, even if you aren't born uh, in Iran, if you have an Iranian name. You know, the dignity of Iran has really been besmirched by the Islamic Republic. And wherever you are in Iran, I think you understand that. They have, uh, they have replicated a lot of what the Soviet Union did to its own society and ecology. It, it just fascinates me to watch these big lakes, uh, freshwater lakes in Iran drying up because that was famously what the Soviets did there. At the time, the biggest freshwater lake in the world was in the Soviet Union. And, uh, and they, they dried it up. It, w it went from the biggest lake in the world to zero under Soviet control. Well, the Iranians are doing the same thing. Now they have had uh, the world's biggest or second biggest freshwater lake, and it is drying up. And there's a massive water crisis in Iran right now, a country just with water all, all, all over the place. They have deprived Iranian farmers and now uh, urban citizens of fresh water, and the, and the country is failing. The first significant, I think I'm right on this, but a significant upheaval uh, in protests of the way the regime was treating its people while it pursued these outside adventures was 10 years ago, 2009, 
um, rather famously or infamously, I'll let you say you, you pronounce the words. There was a pun where they were at, where people in the street were asking Obama, "Are you with us or against us?" You say it because people will hear the pun. That's right, because it's a play on Obama's name. Obama, if you break it up, as Obama, as he's with us, so they would say Obama. Obama, Obama, Yaba, Una, Yabama. Obama, Obama, are you with them or are you with us? Basically, he said, I'm not with you. I, I'm, I'm going to negotiate with your rulers and it's going to work out best for all. It was kind of, and one could say it was kind of, look, if one wants to be charitable, you could say it was an experiment. There were plenty of people in the, I would say, the foreign policy elite in this country and in Europe who said, if you just show Iran's rulers a little bit of respect, if um, give them dignity, um, they want a better life for their people. They'll respond well to this. And so Obama said, "I'm going to reach out my hand if you'll unclench your fist." And you can look at it as an experiment, but what you can't uh, what you can't say is that we don't know how that experiment comes out, because there was never any interest on the part of Ayatollah Supreme Leader Khamenei to say, let's shake this guy's hand. Let's see if we can have a better relationship. Let's see if we can peacefully coexist and produce a better life. He, that, that was never the case. And of course, the repression in 2009 was massive of, of, of the people rising up in the street. And more than, and without a lot of reporting from Western sources because it would have been dangerous to do. You know, that's absolutely right. And I'll, I'll admit here that, you know, coming of age and, and watching those protests on the street, your heart went out to those people. But then thinking about foreign policy and thinking about American interests and, you know, as a child who did watch the Iraq war on, on television every day, you kind of did have, you know, initially – uh, an understanding for where Obama came from. You're like, oh my goodness, well, you know, you don't want another war in the Middle East. Let, you know, let's see where this thing goes. But, you know, I think very quickly we understood what the Islamic Republic was interested in. And it was not interested at all in making a genuine equitable deal with the United States and not interested at all in giving away its nuclear capability. And now we have 10 years of data and still those same experts saying, know that, you know, you need to treat them with a little bit more respect and, you know, terminate these anti-drug programs and don't push back on Syria, don't push back on Iraq, you know, don't do a, a global campaign against, you know, radical Islam, don't do any of this stuff and address Sarif politely on Twitter and then maybe they'll come back to the table. Um, the funny thing is, you know, we have 10 years of data to prove that that's not going to work, but the argument is still the same. Michael, you're more bullish than I am on the state of the revolution within Iraq at this point. I'll let Benham speak for himself on this. You think that it's it could be to the point where the volcano is about to blow, and my view is we have no idea. Oh, no. We, we have idea. I mean, we see them. We see them in the streets. We see them. That we see their graffiti on the walls. We know, and the regime knows. And, and if you want to see how obvious the strength of revolutionary forces in Iran are, listen to the regime and look at what they do. Under the so-called moderate uh, Rouhani, executions in Iran have increased by 50%, 50%, right? So first you had the fanatical evil Ahmadinejad, and now we get this wonderful moderate Rouhani, and they're killing half again as many people, probably more. But he smiles more often than that. Oh, <laughs> he smiles a lot. And Zarif, what a charmer. What a charmer. And he speaks such yeah. good English. He must be our friend. So it's there. Iranians that I know, Iranians that I talk to, uh, think that between 80 and 90% of the Iranian people 
uh, detest the regime. And that's not a rare number. I mean, it seems a colossal number. It's a huge number. But you hear a lot. I mean, it's that kind of thing. There was a poll, what, 20, 30 years ago? I can't keep track of time anymore at my advanced age, but um, there was an actual poll taken by the Interior Ministry in Iran that showed 73% of the Iranian public was opposed to the regime. That's their own measurements. That's not uh, CIA ringing up numbers at random in downtown Tehran and saying, hi, how do you feel about the Ayatollah Khamenei? So, so it's there. Uh, what is not happening is uh, they are not getting support from outside, these people. Uh, they're not getting support from the United States. They're certainly not getting support from uh, EU countries. Uh, uh, when, when we brought down the Soviet Union, we had the support of maybe 10% of the, of the public. Dissidents constituted maybe 10%. Here we've got 80-90%. If we could bring down the Soviet Union nonviolently, and supporting uh, their internal enemies, uh, Iran should be easier. I guess, and I'll go to Benham on this, my fear is that, sure, they would, the, the Iranians would like a, a better deal and a better, and a better government, um, but as long as the rulers are willing to mow them down, rape women in pr- prison, uh, as long it's one thing if you have Gor- Gorbachev that you're fighting against, you can beat him. It's even the Shah, you can beat him. If it's the British, the Indians can get their independence. But when you're talking about really tough guys, it's not so easy. Now, I imagine they're watching carefully what's going on in Venezuela to see if the Venezuelans succeed in getting rid of Maduro or not. And that may be an inspiration you never, but we, but I find it hard to predict. Yes, and I think the the regime now, but especially Khamenei, seems to be an astute student of history. I think they've studied the the color revolutions of you know Eastern Europe and Central Asia. They know again the U.S. modus operandi, and I, and I will say this: looking at the Iranian press for maybe ten, eleven years now, personally and professionally, on an almost daily basis, they are more aware of American domestic cleavages and the lack of resolve—not the lack of capability, but the lack of resolve uh, in America and the political disarray in America. And they they have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills. The Iranian press used to think that the Wall Street protests were going to were going to be the end of the liberal-led world order. But they do believe that there will be a genuine end to the liberal-led world order and they will outlast it. Khomeini famously sent a letter to the Soviet Union late in his life telling them to repent and convert to Islam. And he said once the Soviet Union falls, the, you know, the West will be next. And a few years later he died and the Soviet Union fell. And, you know, that cadre, that elite clique around Khomeini, the hardcore genuine revolutionaries are waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're waiting to outlast uh, America. They're waiting to outlast the West. Well, and right now they may feel they really only have to outlast this administration. If they can just hang in there for two more years, the next administration is likely, assuming that Trump, I, don't, I have no idea, if Trump is not reelected, if it's a Democratic administration, if it, I, and I don't know who that would lead that, will not be as tough on them as Trump has been, which, as Michael points out, is not all that tough. It's tough in some ways. It's not, it's not tough in others. 
But um, they're thinking, yeah, we, if we go two years, uh, it'll get easier, right? I fully agree. And there's a lot of knowledge in Washington about what are the sources of Iranian escalation. We need to be better about what are the, knowing what are the sources of Iranian restraint. When the Islamic Republic doesn't push all the way, why is it? So why is it not really stepping outside the boundaries of the nuclear deal? And I think it's this fundamental political calculation that to be fundamentally crass, yeah. they are waiting for regime change in Washington before regime change in Tehran. We don't know all the secret violations that they have committed. Every time when the Israelis come up with these documents, our, our experts on Iran all, all said, well, nothing new there, but it turns out there was a lot new there. 2019 is likely to be an interesting and active year, 40 years since the revolution. Uh, will it last another year, another four, another 40? We don't know. We'll have you both back to discuss that uh, as we see the developments uh, continue and, and mature. Until then, thanks for being here to both of you, and thanks to all of you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.